local news is 90% nonpartisan. And if we could just cut off the national ideology war when you're looking at local news, that's what I would encourage. In order to preserve democracy, we need to preserve the kind of discourse we're having here tonight. It has to be a commodity that we value. When your news source doesn't value both sides, doesn't value getting to the bottom and asking hard questions, that is cheating you on something that we should all value. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for part two of A Local Press, Ghost Papers, News Deserts, and the Future of Democracy. Hopefully you had a chance to listen to part one already. If not, you may want to start there. It's the episode right before this one. But if you decide to start here, that works too. This is another throwback episode from a program that took place in early 2020. And once again, this is another topic that seems to only be getting more relevant as we see hometown newspapers continue to collapse across the country, actively feeding our lack of trust and the partisan divide at a national level. This program provides incredible insight into the media industry and the current challenges facing local journalism. And our guests aren't just focused on problems, they also explore creative solutions for keeping hometown journalism alive and well in our community for decades to come. This program is facilitated by Jennifer Portman, Enterprise Editor for USA Today, and it's broken up into two episodes. In the last one, we heard from former Tallahassee Democrat publisher Skip Foster and Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald, Mary Ellen Class. In this episode, our conversation continues with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Bob Sanchez and editor of Tallahassee Reports, Steve Stewart. Plus, Skip and Mary Ellen stick around for the Q&A portion of the program. And we have one other exciting part to announce. This episode begins with an introduction to the hardworking local journalists at the Tallahassee Democrat. Editor William Hatfield gives us a quick rundown of each of them and their specialties to provide us with a little more context behind the names we see in print. Before we get started, we'd like to offer a huge thank you to the sponsors of this program, the Tallahassee Democrat, Johnson & Blanton, and Periodontal Associates of North Florida. And also a big shout out to the Florida League of Cities for working with us on the Year of Living Locally. This program wouldn't be possible without you all, so thank you very much. All right, without further ado, let's get to part two of A Local Press, 
We pick up with Jennifer Portman inviting William Hatfield to say a few words about the local journalists at the Tallahassee Democrat. And then Jennifer welcomes Bob Sanchez and Steve Stewart to the conversation. So here's Jennifer. Because we've been talking a lot about the Democrat, the Democrat editor, William Hatfield, is here tonight. And we wanted to give him just like a very quick couple few seconds, minutes to... Definitely minutes. Minutes. Definitely. Minutes. <laughs> minutes. minutes. Hopefully not too tedious. He usually does move things right along. Thank you guys so much. I mean, you know, this is a panel of some of the journalists I most respect in uh, life. And, and as the editor of the Democrat and Tallahassee.com, I wanted to introduce you to some of the smartest, passionate people I know and embarrass them a little bit. Blessed to work with, serving the city. You know, we've talked a lot about the serious challenges that this industry faces. Um, those challenges are very real. The life-changing work these reporters and editors do in the face of those challenges each day is also very real. You know, I'm going to start with Jeff Burlew. Stand up, Jeff, just for a second. Our investigative reporter. And you guys can wait to clap at the end. Uh, Jeff's made it the Democrats' mission to tell the stories of homicide victims who these days often go unnamed by our police departments because of the interpretation of Marcy's Law. And they literally cry out for justice from beyond the grave. Uh, He recently told us about John Dees, the Iraq war vet who's haunted by the scars of war addiction and was killed on Tallahassee's streets. Carl Letters wanted to be here tonight. He's covering He's here. He's here. He's here. He made it. Uh, <laughs> covering the county commission meeting. He's the local government reporter who recently, along with Berlu, referenced by Steve, uh, spent months investigating influence beyond the scenes and questionable lobbying in local government. Jim Rossica, a Capitol Press Corps veteran and our new news director. <laughs> He's he's coordinating the Capitol coverage for 17 newspapers and websites. Byron Dobson. Byron, you're behind me. you got to stand up. Please wave. (laughs) He's our most veteran reporter who juggles the happenings at our higher ed institutions. Randy Atwood. She's our digital editor who also oversees the opinion page. She's also the Zingmeister. She's Zing. I shouldn't have said that. But you know what? She also wrote a... She wears a lot of hats. She landed the Democrat a $25,000 Facebook grant that is enabling us to continue Hurricane Michael recovery coverage in those hard-hit communities and news deserts. We have Kurt Wheeler, who serves all Seminole fans out there with relentless coverage. He's also a great Twitter play-by-play. James Call... He's our state worker advocate who just reported that the uh, Senate president is including an across-the-board pay raise in his budget that will be released. We have Bill Cotterell, our capital curmudgeon. He has supervised lawmakers in Florida for more than a half century and, and written about their doings and dealings. John Kennedy is here. He is the second part of journalism power couple and, and one of the most authoritative voices in capital coverage. Netta Hassanane, one of our best storytellers who took readers after Hurricane Michael to name and tell the stories of those who lost their lives in Hurricane Michael. Jeffrey Schwears, maybe? There he is back there. He's our capital correspondent, watchdog reporter, who, along with Jeff Burlew, told Tallahassee about questionable dealings and corruption at City Hall long before guilty pleas and settlements. These these are the men and women 
who oh, wake the up each day. Didn't have any reporters anymore? They do a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, these are the men and women who wake up each day, face those challenges head on, in a mission to tell Tallahassee's story. And telling that story wouldn't be possible without all of you who support local journalism. And, and I just want to thank all of the subscribers, print, online, and both. It's not too late. Please join the subscriber fold. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for this important discussion. Uh, so it's time for me to invite Bob? Bob Sanchez and Steve Stewart up to the conversation. Welcome. So you guys have been listening. You guys were sort of here to uh, round out our panel and, you know, a slightly different perspective here. Steve uh, is the publisher of Tallahassee Reports, which focuses on Tallahassee city government, sort of in this niche idea that we've been talking about. Bob has just been around forever and ever and knows this industry, you know, in and out and has survived it and seen it all. Um, so I guess I will throw it open maybe to you, Steve, first, you know, some thoughts on what this conversation's been. Yeah, well, my first thought is I'm really concerned about Jeff Burlew sitting next to the U.S. attorney. <laughs> <laughs> so wondering about that, wondering about that. No, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's been a journey. Actually, I'm the editor. My wife is the publisher. Okay, I'm sorry. That's fine. So, you know, we started this as a blog in 2009, and I was sort of involved with, I've known Mary Ellen for a number of years, with the Public Service Commission at the state level, sort of where I adopted this watchdog mentality. And so as I watched the news media change, it's, you know, it's exciting from my vantage point. I understand from the legacy media, it's, it is depressing. And, you know, for the record, I haven't subscribed to the Tallahassee Democrat. Uh, I encourage you to subscribe to Tallahassee Reports. <laughs> I think that where we're moving is that local news is going to be provided by a lot of different outlets. I mean, if you read, there's a lot of stuff, and Mary Ellen has studied this, but there's a lot of people who write about this and what's happening across the country. We became a nonprofit in 2015 because, I mean, there's a group called Institute for Nonprofit News, 150, 200 members, and it's growing. And that sort of is the model where it's going, but there's a lot of different obstacles on the way. I mean, what Skip talks about is something we don't have to do is the Tallahassee Democrat has to cover everything because they are the paper of record. And um, I'm glad they have to do that. I don't want to do that. We focus on local government, school board, city, uh, Leon County Commission, and we cover the business community, business statistics. And so that's sort of our focus. So I'm excited about the future and the opportunities to get the news out there. I think there's a number of things that have to change within the news industry. First of all, and again, I respect journalists uh, immensely. The, the problem is, and this is coming from a free market guy, capitalism has ruined journalism. And it's because journalism, for the most part, is a public good. If you go back and look, John Collins started the Tallahassee Democrat back in the mid-1800s. It was owned by individuals in the community until 1965. And that's what it's going to, it's sort of, I think, going to boomerang back to. You know, the, the money, Gannett, we're shipping money. Our eyeballs are shipping money out of town. They're not choosing to do this, but that's because they're corporately owned. And that was a choice made in the 60s and 70s. And now they can't, they can't really send the amount of money that they're looking for. So now they're sort of, obviously, they're cutting resources. So I think from that standpoint, it's going to change. It has to change because it's not working. And I think it's going to be, it's not my thought, it's what I'm reading, is that you're going to get local news from WFSU, from Taos Reports, from the Taos Democrat, from other outlets. My issue is I think we should work together. I call it competitive collegiality. I think we have to be competitive in what we cover 
everybody wants to break the story or wants to do the, you know, the investigative reporting. But I think together as local media, we need to provide each other the credibility. And, and, and this has happened on occasions. You know, Talish Reports has been cited, you know, across the state. Tempe Times, Orlando Sentinel, Miami Herald, Washington Post, and yes, Tallahassee Democrat. And I think what they were talking earlier about the state level where people would jump in on stories, and I'm really focused on just local news. There's other, I've seen the problems nationally in the state, and I don't want to deal with those. But from a local news perspective, I think it really can be done. You almost need a Tallahassee Press Association, and you need to be competitive, but collegial at the same time. And so I'm excited about it. It's going to be, I think, a bumpy road. We're growing, but we started with nothing, you know, so I mean, it's easy to grow. And we are using, you know, we're using interns from FSU to do some reporting. We have uh, ex-reporters that work on the side. They're not full-time employees. But, you know, technology has made it easier to cover a lot of these meetings. So that helps also. But I, I'm very focused on trying to help the, the media in Tallahassee grow and be responsive because, you know, what we've gone through in the last 10 years here locally I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a reflection of sort of the community, unfortunately, but I think it's something we don't want to happen again. And I think a very aggressive, credible, and um, competent media will stop that from happening. So anyway, I'm looking forward to the next uh, 10 to 15 years. Bob, what's your perspective on the local scene? Well, one thing is that the local news is not necessarily partisan, as some speakers have pointed out. As some candidates have pointed out, fixing a pothole is not necessarily a partisan issue. Right. I, I think Liz wanted us on the panel because to represent the young people. <laughs> <laughs> the diver- shoot, oh, we were going to uh, diversify uh, the panel. Uh, my bad. Conservatives. Okay, conservatives. Well, one thing I, I think that a lot of us focus on the national media, the cable networks, the national newspapers, and so forth. And one thing I wanted to mention was that I think a sad fact of life is that some conservatives are not lamenting the disruptions in the news media. Mm -hmm. In fact, they're kind of gleeful about it. And my point would be, well, why would that be true? Well, of course, you have people like Rush Limbaugh referring to the mainstream media or the drive-by media. You have that uh, alt-right lunatic who's on the same station as Steve Stewart, uh, (laughs) Alex Jones, who denies the existence of the school massacre in Connecticut and Mm -hmm. so forth, deriding the media. The question is, why does that resonate so much among some conservatives? Right. And I think there's a perception among conservatives that the national media in particular, notwithstanding Fox News and talk radio, the national media as a whole, including the New York Times and Washington Post and the major TV networks, lean to the left. Mm-hmm. And they may not even realize they do. As they say, fish don't know they're swimming in water. They right. just... I'm reminded of, uh, I was attending a seminar at Columbia a few years ago, and uh, we had a break, so I went out to walk around. Those little news kiosks that you see in the old movies used to have all the tabloids displayed. They were, there were only a couple of papers there, but they still have postcards. And there was a cartoon depiction of Manhattan Island, and all the territory to the left of it was labeled unexplored territory. <laughs> and to some extent, that's what the people who fly back and forth from Madison Avenue in Manhattan to Hollywood and back call the flyover zone. Right. And sometimes they refer to uh, the residents of the flyover zone with certain contempt. They're clinging to their faith and their guns and so forth. Right. 
So I, I think there was some of that involved, and it was one reason it resonated. The other question is, how did we, how did it get so bad so quickly? Right, that's what I was going to ask you, like, how? <laughs> well, I brought a prop, which I left in my car. <laughs> but um, it was the last edition of the Miami News, Miami's oldest newspaper. It was December 31st, 1988, and the headline across the top, Farewell Miami. And that left the Miami Herald, where I work, as the only paper in town. Now, did the Herald see this as a harbinger, a canary in the coal mine for things to come? No, it, the attitude was, wow, we got the whole town to ourselves now, all yes. the advertising, all that sort of stuff. And as it continued to grow in the 90s, the publisher decided we needed a new press that was larger and faster, and they believe they spent $150 million to put a new, faster press in the Herald because it was always going to be up. But quickly, when I retired in 2000, I took early retirement from the Herald to become a spokesman for a state agency. <laughs> the uh, circulation was teetering around 500,000. Now it's teetering around 100,000. A lot of clicks online because a lot of foreign visitors, especially, or people planning to visit Florida, they think Miami and Florida are the same thing. But And, and the Herald is very clever at writing headlines that are good clickbait. I think their favorite punctuation mark is the ellipsis. We like colons, too. You know, report. Yeah. So, so anyway, I think for various reasons, the it's kind of ironic the pundits and publishers whose favorite auxiliary verbs was must, ought to, and should, didn't see it coming in their own no. industry. Well, do yeah. you think the lack of competition has driven some of that hyper-partisanship? Or, or? Well, I think one, one bit of collateral damage was this consolidation you've spoken about mm -hmm. of ownership. And quite often, the headquarters of these corporations were back in one of those places like New York right. or Washington right. or their news operations were. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that the reason this industry is in the bad shape it's in is because newspaper men are terrible businessmen. You know, if, we, if they had any idea in the 90s when the Internet arrived, they, they could have been, they could have preceded Facebook and Google by saying, wow, if people start reading our stories, we can track what they read. We can, we can get their data and sell their data. They had no idea what, what they had in front right. of them. So, you know, here we are. I'm not necessarily saying that that doesn't mean that the next generation can't, can't reinvent something and be successful, but I think Steve is right in that the future is going to be more niches. And, you know, we're going to have the sports sites that deliver news for the people who want sports and fashion for fashion and gossip for those that like dirt, and, you know. But the challenge is who wants to go to a website that's just about government? You know, that, right, that right. is the hardest challenge. On that point, because we, we started covering the city pretty heavily, and, we, and that's sort of a question that, that we've mm -hmm. come up with is when we start that. But you start thinking about local government. And we're trying to grow, and and we you know we see what people read, and you know back to Skip's point, it's about 350 words is about the max, and people quit reading. But we started saying, well, wait a minute, you know we're just covering the city. How many people can just be interested in the city? We start thinking about the school board with you know here in Leon County, you have 33,000 kids in school. That's 33,000 households. So. The school board, I think, and this is not a critique, but I think well, for whatever reason, resources has been undercovered 
uh, in this community a great deal because there is so much going on. I mean, you look at all the schools and, you know, you look at the meetings, you look at everything that's going on. And so you have to think about those things that you're going to cover that draw interest. And we have found that that is, uh, you know, next to the corruption that we've covered in City Hall was the school board, some just very moderate stories that you're just reporting is getting a, get a lot of traffic. And so that's a very interesting dynamic. So I think, but you're right. It's from a niche standpoint. We do a, a print newspaper and we put a, a page in there with mostly FSU sports. Just again, back to Skip's point, trying to give a little bit to everyone. But it, everything you read is you can't be everything to everybody anymore. I mean, that's the way it used to be. You know, the crossword puzzle of comics and the classifieds. And it, it's going to be more niche. And that's where it becomes, if you're more niche, you can be more, you can provide more quality because you're just focused on that. And, you know, there's all kind of Facebook pages and websites that are covering like food. I mean, do you really need to, and again, this is not hitting on one thing. It's, it, it's sports is the same way. I mean, how many, how many sites cover FSU sports? It's got to be at least three. And I don't think, I think two of them don't charge. And that's just ones to generate from Tallahassee. You get nationally and there's, there's more stuff. So that is, that is a, there's a lot of people interested, but it is a saturated market. So again, I think what we're trying to do is it's not, maybe it's not pretty all the time and you don't make a lot of friends. I can attest to that, but it's the journalism that needs to be done. And like we've set up here on the panel, there are kids that I work with coming out of FSU that are doing this for the right reasons. There's so much negativity in the legacy media and the, the future of journalism. You try to convince them, look, this is, it's going to be different and you need to be ready for that. And this is, this is what's possible. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, in one respect, uh, Tallahasseans are very local because the structure of government, of local government here, is very different from some Florida counties. In Miami-Dade County, there are 31 municipalities, including some of the most corrupt imaginable. <laughs> These local officials are elected in elections where there, you may be lucky to have 10% of the voters turn out. Right. And it is just a mess. And that is more than the Miami Herald can cover, even though it has more resources right. than the Tallahassee Democrat has one city, one county, one school board, and a few other things to cover, plus, like every paper, state government. Well, I think one of the things, though, too, is though the, clearly these niche things, you know, you can get $5 million here to start your niche to get hold down this little piece of it. I mean, part of the beauty of legacy newspapers and even on websites is you run across stuff that's surprising, that you didn't know you were looking for. And I kind of, I hope that as this evolves, that there's room for that discovery in how we consume our media. Because I, who read a lot of news now, still love to be surprised by a great life story or a, you know, because not everything should be I, Jennifer, am seeking out, you know, the best brand of comfortable shoes. So there, you know, and I want to find out exactly what happened at that debate. Like, no, like, I think it's important that we have experienced the world and it's not always just what I want right now. It's what I can run into and can be surprised so, by. So there's a Harvard professor who, who studied this and he's basically, what we have lost is, is the, is serendipity. We, mm -hmm. we, you don't open the newspaper and accidentally see a story about something you never had intended to see because it is these algorithms that are curating what your favorite things are and they're delivering it to you without, and you have no idea how they're coming up with that, that formula, but they're sending it to you and it's all in some big black box and you'll, and you will never know. And if, if, you know, until we get to the point where we have the kind of self-discipline 
that says, we got to go outside of that box. We're going to continue to be fed exactly the everything that confirms our biases, our weaknesses, and potentially our strengths. But it's not us that is making the choice. Right. It makes it really bad when you accidentally click on like a beet recipe or something on, uh, <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like beets are in your timeline all the time. I, I can't, I didn't like that. Make it go away. I, I, how do you un-algorithm yourself? I, we need to, maybe that's a bit startup company. No kidding. Do you yeah. have a question? Um, so here's sort of a related question is, so how, how does the Democrat decide their editorial stances? was the decision to not endorse candidates related to financial concerns. And then throwing into that is, um, you know, aren't there, aren't there risks to this, the niche markets and the siloization that you're not sort of having the editorial process that's a part of a ma- more major news source? So on our editorial, the way that works is I came up with an idea, Jennifer shouted it down, and we decided just to not write anything on it. <laughs> I'm not joking. That's exactly how it went. Yeah. Uh, Actually, Jeff just wrote, walked by me and looked at me knowingly when you said that. On endorsing candidates, that was my thing. I have always believed that it's really a two-prong objection. I think it's arrogant and presumptuous, and I think it ties us, it ties our wagon to political leaders for better and usually for worse. And I don't want, I don't want to be stuck with people that we endorse. And so we haven't done that. I'm no longer the we. So I don't know what, uh, William and his team are going to decide to do. <laughs> Doesn't sound like they're going to change it. Once you, once you go there, it's a really nice place to be because it drives us toward our mission of focusing on issues, not people. So we had a very robust, pre-election editorial board set up where even at statewide offices we went really deep and you could see that since they weren't trying to you know get our endorsement or not get it depending on what they really wanted we really got some amazing information out of those and sometimes some pretty uh, robust to put it charitably uh, discussion so and no, nothing about finance mm-hmm. has had anything to do with any editorial we wrote. That, that is, a, I appreciate the question, but that is uh, very, very far from the truth. Or it was more specifically, did you stop endorsing because of financial issues? In other words, Heavens resources. No. No, 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 no. Bob? And I, I somewhat disagree with his decision not to endorse for this reason. At least it may depend on the size of the market you're serving. In Miami-Dade County, there were dozens and dozens of offices, for, especially for judgeships. So it would help people. And serve. it was sort of like restaurant reviews and other things. We did have the candidates fill out questionnaires. We brought them in for interviews. We checked to see whether the Bar Association had recommended them or not and, and who else was for them or against them for various reasons. And... Uh, it may be different for judges and le- their legislators. There were like 20 different legislative seats in Dade County for the House and, and, and 9 right. or 10 for the Senate. So yeah. we, we, didn't, we knew people wouldn't care whom we endorsed for president. They probably had their mind made up, although they might want to know, well, what do you people think about it? Right. But and for governor and cabinet offices, we did endorse for the most part. But. So we still did all of the questionnaires. We did the interviews. And then we would write editorials, and we would say, 
here are their positions on major issues, and here's where we fall on those issues. So we were sometimes it was you know pretty obvious that we felt the same way as a certain candidate on all the issues. Most of the time, it was a mix of things, and we let people look. Reasonable people can disagree on this. I understand fully what the argument is for endorsing candidates. I think that's a reasonable view. It just doesn't happen to be my view. Constitutional mm -hmm. amendments also. It's very helpful mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes the I discussion happens. Did. Yeah, we, we did, did do, do constitutional amendments because that wasn't attaching ourselves to a person. And then after they pass, you try to figure out what they mean. <laughs> well, Marcy's, Marcy's law, felons that's voting, and so forth. Liz? So how did the AP and UPI work, and could that system be revived? We, I, we actually use a new service um, for new state service coverage. service of Florida? Yeah, new service of Florida, which is, for a nonprofit, is very reasonable. And it's, uh, we get to pick the stories of professional journalists, and it adds a lot of credibility to what, what we do. And, you know, I don't, that's one of the things I don't understand. I know that the uh, a, UPI, I guess, is still, is that still around, UPI? UPI is gone. Yeah. <laughs> AP is, AP. I know, is still used. But that's, that's sort of what you have with the new service of Florida. You've got, like, what, eight journalists maybe? that are writing about, you know, are covering everything in the they state. Just, they just cover state issues. Yeah. yeah, and it's not a lot of investigative stuff. It's more just uh, um, news of the day, but it's very in-depth articles. Well, and I think when you see a company like New Gannett, you've got now 265 papers. Uh, the AP starts becoming more and more not super relevant because if you right. are plucking content from El Paso and Colorado Springs and I, I've got a reporter there, right, all of a sudden. So, you know, it's it, the new Gannett has paper in 49 states now. So, Yeah, um, AP's in big trouble. It's a member-supported organization. So as the membership <laughs> suffers, so does the Associated Press. I mean, it's paid for by legacy newspapers for the most part and, and TV. And then Jennifer makes a great point. If you don't think Gannett is going to look at that, you know, expense and say, wow, we could become the new AP, get rid of that expense, and then start charging other papers and turn it into a revenue stream, that seems like a pretty obvious business strategy. So certainly not giving away any Yeah, I don't have any uh, proprietary I mean, information you know, there. It's just, I mean, uh, you can a, just look upon the landscape. So I think AP's in big trouble. And is Reuters basically the same model? Well, it's more of an international, international. Uh, thing, so I don't. That's I don't know about that. Wire. And business wire, yeah. yeah. Well, so um, Skip, you had actually said that the Texas Tribune has a model that that provides stories downstream to local, right? Well, Correct. there are lots of nonprofit news organizations sprouting up of various size. ProPublica has been around right. in Minnesota forever. Um, one of the really first kind of nonprofit news outlets. We've got here the news service, which Steve mentioned. There's Florida Phoenix, which is one of those kind of partisan outlets. There's Sunshine State News, which is the right-wing version of the counterpart to the Florida Phoenix. So there's various models. Uh, most of them are free. Most of them are uh, openly share their content. So, you know, we'll have to see. There, there's a lot of kind of new growth there. Does it reach a scale that changes the face of American journalism? You know, we'll just have to see about that. I certainly hope it does. And, and you know, not or, but and, that for-profit journalism finds its footing in a renaissance as well. So that answer your question? 
I'm sure Steve has something to say about that. No, I, I wanted to comment real quick I, on the, the partisan. We, I know we had talked in the, in the meeting about how the partisan divide at the national level affects local news. And I wanted to comment that on just briefly because one of the things, you know, we've been referred to as a conservative newspaper. And that is sort of when you start getting those buzzwords, um, it's, you know, their labels. And it, it, it bothers me from the sense that, you know, I, I don't uh, watch cable news. You know, I read, uh, I get online for the stuff nationally that I want to get. I go to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. You can find the truth nationally if you really want it. But from a local perspective, it, I think it's very important because there is an effect here. When we see, when we post stories, it's, you know, people that are really tuned in and really driven by what's going on nationally. You could hit them with facts on local government. It wouldn't matter because, oh, that's that conservative newspaper or that's Steve Stewart, or that's, you know, and it's the same thing on the, uh, it's the same thing on the other side. I'll give you a quick example. The Democrat had a great article uh, last week by Carl Letters on an issue that's been a, a big issue here on lobbyists and vendors and campaign consultants. And it was well written, very in depth. So I shared it on my Facebook and gave a shout out to the Democrat. And you see comments on there. It's coming from, you know, obviously, some people that read Talos Reports. Dismissing it right off the bat because it's the Tallahassee Democrat. And so I know, I know how they feel because we get the same thing. And I think it's very important locally. And I'm, I'm asking you all to do this is you don't look at the messenger. You can know the messenger. You can know the bias of the messenger, but look at the story and look at the credibility of the story. And I think that that's something that we're trying to do over the next couple of years is to make sure that people that write things that we not, I don't want to use the word endorse it, but we follow up on it and give credibility to the people that maybe are just narrowed in to reading Ty's reports. So I think that's, uh, again, one of the big impacts from the national book, because there are people, uh, I, it's scary. We, we did try from a, an opinion standpoint, I tried to do like a crossfire thing with a liberal candidate here but on, on our newspaper. We did it for three months. I, it, it was useless. It was, it was utterly useless. And it was more na it brought in the national political dynamic. And on Facebook and on social media, it's, it's amazing the things that people will say and what they will ignore. And so now we are just strictly local. We don't, you know, we just try to cover local. We do this, the news service for the yeah. state, but try to focus on local. Bob? Yeah, I think we'd be remiss. Everybody on the stage here has been associated with newspapers. But I think we'd be remiss if we don't also mention that broadcasts television stations are also in trouble. It, you sure. remember the final episode of MASH and some of these historic shows, 90% of the people were tuning in. Now you're lucky if a show is considered a hit if you get 5% of the audience. A lot of t local TV stations, even in big cities like Jacksonville, have given up covering local mm -hmm. news, not that they cover it in as much depth as the print media right. did. But it's worth noting also, and it's so formulaic, it has to be visual, some scholars at FSU could issue a 300-page scholarly report. It would be ignored. But if some morons scrawl right. a slogan on a placard and wave it in front of the old Capitol, the cameras will be there. No, I know. It is true. So, but as bad as it is, TV news at the local level is suffering as the, people go to other and the kids are watching on their phones, right. listening to their playlist, all that sort of thing. So, Liz, our fearless leader. Uh, a couple of questions regarding the legislature. Please talk about the public notice bill. There's a bill in the legislature to eliminate the requirement for local governments to public 
publish notices in the newspaper. What effects would this bill have on newspapers and government transparency? And then also, there's a move to reduce government in the sunshine that is a topic in this year's session. Please comment. What was the last bad, question? Bad. <laughs> <laughs> the last? All move bad. to reduce government in the sunshine. Oh, so the public notices, I'll talk about that, and then uh, these anybody here can handle sunshine probably better than me, but public notices have been in newspapers and on their websites for many, many, many years. Uh, these are notices of government meetings, of zoning hearings, of tax changes, and the like. Newspapers lobby very hard to keep these in newspapers because if you combine our print and digital reach, we are still by far the, have the greatest reach of any um, outlets that there are, and this is vital information to have, and because the last thing we need to do is put the government in charge of noticing its own meetings, lest they stick it on some site that you're never on, 19 links away from finding it, and nobody, the, the already too small participation in government becomes even more anemic at best, and at worst, they just flat out hide things that they don't want you to know about so that there's no accountability. And so there are still many people, believe it or not, I bet a couple in this room that aren't on the Internet uh, or, or certainly aren't regularly, and so having our still significant print reach in addition to mandatory digital presence of uh, legal ads is still vital. My you know, guess is Steve has a different view on this. No, I, you know, that, <laughs> that is something that helps, obviously, like legacy media. But I, I haven't, you know, I remember the bill's been up a couple of times, and they, I don't think it's anything that uh, well, it's, it's I get real weekly, hot about. Well, it's also weekly papers, small papers. You yeah. know, the, the irony is I have never been in a legislative meeting where they don't print out the amendments and the text of the bills and the bill analysis in a binder presented to each of them before they vote on something. And as soon as they stop printing everything out, then we can stop printing out all the changes they want to do in law in, the, in our newspapers. <laughs> they, they really are, you know, we still are, want to see it in black and white. And um, until... Until we move that direction, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Uh, on the Sunshine Law, and I, I don't know this from the state level, but the, the Sunshine Law, and this is something that, that I found out doing research in, a, in another job, but Florida, the Sunshine Law makes it so much easier for local journalists. I mean, one of the things that in Tallahassee, Tallahassee Reports has been spoiled with is the ease of getting information from the city and the county. Um, it was It's amazing because when you start, I know I hear st a lot of state reporters now arguing about, or not arguing, complaining about how it takes months, which resembles more what I'm dealing with with the school board now. But the, um, so that is a really uh, important part of what we do in, in getting that information. And so I, I feel for the state reporters because one of the things during all this stuff with the city that we went through the last 10 years, they have professionals in the clerk's office. We would always get information. I never really felt that they were dodging anything on providing the information. Now, I will tell you, again, just a, a plug here. Uh, I don't have the 12 people to introduce, but the, um, uh, we did a story on the school board that has started a, um, this refers to the sunshine, started doing a Monday meeting before their Tuesday meeting. And we actually, and I'm very proud of this journalism that we did. We wrote a story, and it turns out that 10 of those, they had 45 meetings. 10 of them, there is no record of anywhere. 
Uh, they didn't keep minutes. There's no audios and no, vi- and no video. Now, obviously, I would have loved to have follow-up on that. I even appealed to some state reporters to talk about it. Couldn't get anybody to write about it. And so I think, again, in the vein of the sunshine, it's so important. That's one of the things we have locally is you can go to these meetings, you can get these documents. And for the city and county, it's been really, they've been really good at doing that. Yeah, the only thing I was going to add is you know you're on to something they don't <laughs> want when they start charging you for your public records request, right? It's like free, 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 free. Uh, that one will be $5,000. Oh, well, uh, you know, I wonder, I wonder why. The, the other thing, and, you know, this gets back to corporate ownership, Gannett rolled the dice on an important lawsuit against the city to require them to start archiving text message right. and social media messaging of government employees which the city eventually capitulated and signed a consent agreement and agreed to some checkup depositions along the way. Uh, you know, if, if we had lost that, then we would have owed thousands and thousands of dollars to attorneys. As it turns out, we won, and the city had to pay that. But that was a very important lawsuit because the plain reading of the public records law is, you know, just because you're texting somebody on government business on a government phone, that's public record, right? That's just like sending an email. Well, the city of Tallahassee and virtually every other, maybe every other government in the uh, city and county government in the state was not keeping any of right. those records. And so now there is precedent in this county, in this city at least, that that is required. That's a big deal. And, you know, you just don't see newspapers filing lawsuits anymore, man. I, I run them up, the, used to run them up the flagpole, and it's a tough sell. But here was one where even the big, bad corporate owners uh, did the right thing. So that was nice. Right. Well, I think that, you know, we are really fortunate in Florida that we do have a broad public records law, and it's wonderful to be a reporter here, and other people in other states will tell you that. But it is constantly under attack. It is constantly being amended. It is forever being ratcheted down. Every year, more redactions. Marcy's Law is something that we're dealing with a lot right now. So, you know, that 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 sort of that bright light is always they're trying to, close it in like this. So that was a really great thing mm-hmm. to where we actually saw something added to instead of taken away because there are more than a thousand exemptions but to the public records law. There's, and there's no penalties on this for violation of the Sunshine Laws. When we looked at the school Very board, yeah. you can't, I mean, unless you have the money to file a lawsuit and make a big deal about it, there are really no penalties. Yeah. And as long as they correct it moving forward. Right. And so uh, that's another issue. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important, but you know, I would say like for, it's not just for us reporter types, like that's for all y'all too. So, you know, I think that sometimes it becomes like, oh, well, whatever, you know, we feel bad about those poor journalists. Wah, wah. Well, no, it's about all of us being able to get those records and those records are important. So last question, because we're at the end of the evening and it's kind of a double header. We talked about the, the nonprofit model for news. What about the very for-profit model for news? Do you have any comment on that? So the efforts that are specifically very profit-oriented that are sort of rising from the, um, you know, that, that are not like corporate, but rising, like, I guess they said Peter Schorsch. I don't, I don't oh, know. You mean, <laughs> you mean pay um, to play? Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually the okay. double header so that, so you can answer that. But then the other question is that, just right? what, what is the most important thing that you want this, this audience to know and to take home with them? 
Can we just go on, there? On, on the hey, on the pay to play, this is something as a, as someone who's breaking into journalism that I had to figure out, and it's it is again, it's a statewide problem. It hasn't really reared its head here. We're a nonprofit. We are, all our finances are on our website. There's not a lot there, but you can go look. And certain donors, if we if we take a lot of money from donors, they show up there. But there is this uh, underbelly side which. I wasn't sure how to uh, – I started dealing with it during the campaign of Gillum and uh, DeSantis because I wrote some stuff you might have read on, on the uh, race. But there are people that are that are really good at masking real journalism and doing pay-for-play, and they're taking money from elected officials, lots of money. And it is – it's something that um, – Oh, I just don't know how you, I don't know how you deal with it because it, they, again, there's a number of them in the state and, and, and Mary Ellen, uh, can talk more personal about it. When I look at it from afar and what I figured out what they were doing, it is, it's really, it's a mixture of, you know, having like an in-house politician right in the, your journalist office paying you what to write. And then you mask that with some actual news. And it's uh, people are good at it, and they they make a lot of money on it. We don't do that. And again, the nonprofit requires you to provide your finances so you can see where I you know where the money comes from. Obviously, you see the advertising paper, but when you're for profit, that's something that's something that is easy to hide, and it's not very transparent. You know, I, I think disclosure is the is one of the best disinfectants. And if you find a site that does not disclose who are their contributors, or how are they make their money, I think you have to raise some questions. So just like anything, discern discern the source. So if you're not familiar, this is floridapolitics.com, run by a guy (laughs) named Peter Schwartz. Address. Yeah, well, and it's it's not just elected officials. It's Lobbyists. uh, lobbyists and companies that pay him, and he really manipulates the news. What? What was that? Civility bill? Civility? What a I guess you're not supposed to say that out loud. No. I mean, it's it, he is very upfront about he what is. he does. He, he does. I'm uh, not saying anything negative. I'm just saying the reality is that he accepts payment from various people and then kind of manipulates the news to be favorable to his paying clients on his site. And so it kind of looks like journalism. It's not journalism. It's a way to make a living. Good for him. Not criticizing it, just saying what it is. So second half of the question. I can't believe um, I got the civility bill. Really? <laughs> um, second, second half of the question. Um, what is the most important thing that you want people in the audience to take with them tonight? Bob, why don't you start? Subscribe <laughs> to the Democrat. Okay. Seriously. The, the most important thing I like for people to understand is that local news is 90% nonpartisan. It's about government watchdog priorities and just getting information. And if we could just cut off the national ideology war when you're looking at local news, that's what I would encourage. And I guess my takeaway is please remember that in order to preserve democracy, we need to preserve the kind of discourse we have, we're having here tonight. And that has to be reflected, and it has to be a commodity that we value. When your news source doesn't value both sides, doesn't value getting to the bottom and asking hard questions, that is cheating you on something that we should all value. So I think the the Washington Post's, their motto is democracy dies in darkness, and I think 
we all can accept that and believe it. Well said. If I could leave you with one thing, it would be that uh, getting the civility bell rung on me <laughs> was one of the great travesties of our age. No. I would say, you thought I was going to say something poignant there, didn't you? Seek contrary information and common ground and find the goodness in people with whom you disagree with, even if you disagree with them strongly. I'm preaching to the choir here, but I think civility and viewing things not emotionally but factually and keeping an open mind and learning, not reinforcing what you already think is the most important thing our society can do. And a great way to do that is to support your local newspaper. I'm just a moderator, so I will say be kind to each other and keep reading, please. Thank you. Hi again, it's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this program about local press. If you missed part one, please check that out in the episode right before this one for more insights into the media industry and how current trends are affecting local communities. Thanks to all of our panelists and to all journalists out there for their dedication to this important work. You know, I often have these aha moments when listening to Village Square programs. And here's one from this episode. I enjoyed hearing from Steve Stewart about having more local news sources and having them work together and provide each other credibility. That makes sense to me. And I thought it was really interesting that right after Steve said that, Bob Sanchez brought up the point about some national media organizations wrongly discrediting other media organizations. And so this is an example where we see a broken model on the national stage, but we have a local media representative giving us an idea for doing it differently in our community. To me, this topic of local press is something that our community as a collective could really take charge of. Of course, it would be easier if we could just find that billionaire. If you're sitting there with a puzzled look on your face right now, it might be because you didn't listen to part one. Busted. Just kidding, of course, but not kidding about how great that episode is. So check it out. Thanks for listening to my aha moment. We'd love to hear yours too. Share your thoughts with us by going to our website at tlh.villagesquare.us and clicking on the contact link on the very bottom of the page. To close out this episode, here's a thought-provoking quote that was used on the event page for this program. It's from James Madison in 1798 when he spoke about the press. He said, To the press alone, checkered as it is with abuses, the world is indebted for all the triumphs which have been gained by reason and humanity over error and oppression. On that note, please join us again in two weeks for a God Squad episode. We'll be airing the recent program called True Believers, the Ascendant Religion of Our Political Extremes. It's a really fantastic discussion, so I hope you'll tune in. Please subscribe to Village Squarecast in your favorite podcast app or on our website at tlh.villagesquare.us slash squarecast. That's also where you can find the show notes page for this episode. 
And to see all that's happening with the Village Square, including our new season of programming, subscribe to our newsletter at tlh.villagesquare.us. We'd be so grateful if you'd take just a minute to give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you listening to A Local Press. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.